While there is a great deal of instruction and correction in Peter, uh, to me it also is a very uplifting and hopeful book and section of the Bible that gives us great uh, encouragement and strength uh, and hope. So we got down to chapter 2 last time. <clears throat> He's talked in verse 25 of, well, 24 and 25 particularly, about how flesh does not last, but we wither as grass and die. But the word of the eternal endures forever in the last verse. So it is with the thought in mind that God's word, his way, he himself, is eternal. So, he being eternal, his word then also is eternal. Our word is not eternal. We can say yes or no or maybe or whatever answer we want to give, but our answer can be overturned very quickly uh, at death, and often is in the courts of man or among relatives or whatever. But God will always be there, and we have this opportunity always to be with him and live by his words forevermore. So he closes that and begins chapter 2. Of course, man put the chapter breaks in in any case. But as a result of the fact that God and his word will always be, he says, And therefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisy and envying and all evil speaking, so all those baser things of human nature that are detrimental to other people, they can cause hurt, they can cause discouragement or doubt or fear or disillusionment, we have to lay aside. Uh, he talked about that quite a bit in the preceding chapter about loving one another fervently. And if we love fervently, there is no room for these baser emotions. There's just no place for them. And we are called to be holy, and certainly those things are unholy. Malice, where you actually think about or desire the hurt of someone else in some form or fashion, thought or emotion or word or however it might be expressed, and guile, where we are deceitful in our approach. You know, with some people, you, you never know what they might really be thinking. I guess that's with all people. Uh, sometimes we can say one thing out of our mouth and our mind or our emotions are going a hundred miles an hour in a different direction. Uh, that's the way the human mind works. And hypocrisy, which means saying one thing and doing another. Uh, there isn't room for that, isn't time for that. <clears throat> envy is also a work of the flesh. Uh, we should not envy. That's what covetousness, the last commandment, is all about, is not envying what someone else might have or how they may look or their brains or their whatever it might be that we envy someone for. It can be position, can be social stature, so many, many things that we can have feelings that we wish they weren't that and we were, or whatever. Uh, it takes many, many different forms. And all evil speaking. 
we are not to indulge in any evil speaking. That's a tall order. That one needs to be thought about, prayed about, studied about. You know, people might say, well, that's not meat. We want to hear meat. I guess that means different things to different people. But what does Peter say here? Our attitude should be, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So we may want something that's more titillating to our senses or tickles our brains a little more or new knowledge or whatever it might be. But sometimes we need to go back to the very basic things. A child starts out on milk, which is excellent food, and he grows thereby. So he's telling these people who are already in the church that you may have been around for a long time, you may have been converted for a long time, you may have been in the church 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, whatever the case might be, but if we still have these things mentioned in verse 1, we need to forget about some of the things that we might have built up in our minds and go right back to these very basic things and be sure we get them right. Because if you don't build your attitude and your approach with the right attitude of meekness, humility, kindness, gentleness, joy, peace, and those things that come from the Spirit of God, and you find yourself, as you get older, being more grumpy and irritable and frustrated and negative and putting down and condemning what you don't like, you're working yourself into becoming just another bitter old person. And we shouldn't go there. I've seen people who were quite elderly who were still kind and gentle and loving and neat. But we can allow life and the trials, troubles, tribulations, temptations, sins, uh, offenses from others or whatever to cause us to begin to turn angry or bitter or some of those negative emotions and they can get to the place they dominate our personality. So he says, we have to lay all of that aside. Push it away. Get rid of it. And approach life as newborn babes. Didn't Christ say that? Unless we approach the kingdom of God as little children, with the meekness and humility that should be there, then we aren't fit for the kingdom of God. So Peter is simply repeating here what Christ said. Puts in a little bit different words, but he's getting down. Christ did not define all of the attitudes that go with the vanity, the ego, and the pride as opposed to the meekness and humility and simplicity and even naivete of a little child. But Peter says, okay, here's the fruit of the way of human thinking that you've all probably become, so you've got to lay that aside, and now you have to go back to the correct emotions, that you may grow 
spiritually thereby. So when people say, well, I'm not being fed, uh, well, maybe they're not being fed what they want. Maybe they're not being fed what they desire or would like to hear. <coughs> this is just basic Christianity that we all have fallen short of or gotten away from or maybe never learned one way or another because we did not build on the right foundation the Spirit of God with the qualities of it, but the human nature and the works of the flesh tend to dominate. So he says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the Word. Those simple, sincere, honest, good, uplifting traits that come from God. When we have the things that James talked about, wars, conflicts, confusion, frustration, people juxtaposed against one another, and so on, that tend to happen among people, then what it tells God, and should tell us, is that we are not utilizing His Spirit. That we are not spiritually mature that we have growth that needs to be done, that we have to lay aside those negative emotions and come to have loving, kind, gentle, peaceable approach in our personality, our character, our daily living. It's so easy, is it not, to have those negative things and not even think about it. You just... That's just the way we are. And that's just the way our mouth speaks. And it's so easy to fall into those traps and not even know we're there. Not even know we're there. We just gloss it over and go on and say, well, that's just me. No, don't be me anymore. Be like God. So he tells us, to grow. If so be, you have tasted that the eternal or the Lord is gracious. Now, haven't we tasted that, that he called us out of this world, out of the way that we were going, whatever it might have been, and has given us knowledge of the true way of life that actually does produce happiness and peace and joy when it is lived. It produces the opposite effect if it is not lived. So when we see a lack of peace or joy or love or goodness among ourselves, then we don't need to blame somebody for it except self. Self is the only one you can change. And it's hard enough for good to overcome evil without joining in with it. So we have to be very, very careful of our own attitudes when we see that things are not perhaps always the way they ought to be. Fix me is all we can do. <clears throat> if we've tasted the graciousness, the mercy, the forgiveness, the love of God, then he says, why don't you pass that along? Why don't we do 
to each other what he has done to us. So he says, verse 4, to whom coming? We've been called, we've been converted, we've been brought to him. Now, come to him as unto a living stone. Someone who is alive. We've seen and see lots of rocks around here, don't we, in this country? But they're inert, dead rocks. They don't speak, they don't move, they don't answer, they're just there. He's a living stone. He's used as a stone because you use stones to build buildings and a spiritual temple must be built. He's used as a stone because if people do not obey, that stone can fall on them. And if you've ever had a rock fall on you, you know it is not a pleasant experience. So there are several reasons that he is used in an analogy as a stone. Now, this particular week, I think as I mentioned yesterday, the Passover fell in the same sequence as it did the year he was crucified. Uh, so, as of today, now, and uh, this is the anniversary of him being dead still. To be raised up later this afternoon, or just probably enough before sundown that they could have taken him down and gotten him buried before uh, the end of the day, before sundown. They say three o'clock, that may be pretty close to it. So, in the past, he was dead at this hour that we're sitting here. It will be raised up two or three hours from now. And if, you, and if it was in this area, which I think it was, then the local time is what counts, not the time halfway around the world, or a third of the way around the world. To be raised up this very afternoon. <coughs> and with his resurrection, he will have become living and has been living ever since. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Men certainly disallowed him by torturing and then killing him and disallowing everything he taught. The very Son of God come to the earth to teach the Jews, the Israelites first, about the true God, about true doctrine, about how to truly interpret not only Old Testament, but how to put it in, in his day, more modern terms, and apply the spirit of the law, not just the physicality of it. The very Son of God and his teaching was absolutely denied by nearly everyone. And even his own disciples, when it came down to the nitty-gritty, ran from him and cursed him and said, I don't know the man. Wow. He was disallowed, essentially, by everyone on earth. Even his own closest followers disallowed him. They repented, they changed, but fear drove them that way. Fear of the people who were killing him. So when he says disallowed indeed of men, he means truly disallowed, completely disallowed. Just as the prophets of old were, and just as any prophecy today is. But he's chosen of God and precious. 
Everybody was wrong but him. That's just a fact. (laughs) Everybody was wrong but him. And that's the way it is in Satan's world. He's going to deceive the whole world. And only a very, very few are going to be able to withstand that and not see through what Satan is bringing. We need to prepare ourselves, brethren, for something very, very powerful that is going to happen soon. Something that church members are going to be deceived by. And only a very few, a small remnant, are going to see the difference. If he says prepare yourself spiritually by laying aside all these negative human emotions, we also need to prepare ourselves spiritually in other ways by drawing so close to God and to his Son that we will not be deceived by whatever is coming. He was disallowed by essentially everyone on earth the first time. And God's truth and God's true people are going to be disallowed by virtually everyone on the face of the earth. That which occurred before is going to happen again. I don't know how to describe what is coming. I don't know how to imagine it or fantasize about it, for that matter. It is beyond our comprehension and our ability to understand something so powerful that it will take everyone but the very elect. And if it were possible, even they would be deceived. Christ's own words. We need to prepare our minds and our emotions for something coming from some direction, from some angle, that would cause God's people even to stumble and to accept it. Is it something from partially within the church that might appear so powerful? That would get us a lot quicker than it coming out of the Vatican, wouldn't it? I don't know. Time will tell. But it's going to look pretty good to 90% of the church people. And the true witness that God sends is going to be ignored and denied by 90% of the people. God's own true word sent by those he sends, 90% of God's people will deny it. We already know that. Some of them will repent during the tribulation. But Peter's saying a mouthful here. Come to Christ as one disallowed. If he was disallowed then, he is going to be disallowed again. It is Satan's world. He does deceive the whole world. He affects every part of every society. Every culture is affected very heavily by Satan the devil. And that's why we see so much uh, drug culture, so much alcohol, so much suicide, so much discouragement. Why we see so many people on every kind of drug you can name to try to make their minds and their emotions work halfway normally. We are a sick society. Americans walk around the malls and for the most part, look okay. 
But they aren't. They're under great stress, great emotional difficulty, great pressures, more so than any other nation on earth I just read recently. We are not able to cope with life as we know it. Now, if life is that hard and that bad, in spite of our little smiles, we might use as a people, as a nation, then Satan must have invaded our culture on some levels that is destroying our people. Think about that. Why does God tell us not to have concourse with the world? And that doesn't just mean going to dinner at their house or being friends and going to sports or entertainment venues or whatever. It means their way of thinking, their way of singing, their way of talking, their way of acting. All the things that are in our culture have been designed by Satan to destroy us. And the more we imbibe in those, the more it is going to affect us. So the Word of God endures forever, and Christ will endure forever. But we can disallow Him very easily by the things we participate in and where we let our minds go and where we go on iPhones and iPads and computers and TVs and radios and iPods and all the things that we have that can influence the baser sides of human nature and cause us all kinds of grief. We have to get away from these human tendencies and go God's way. Christ was chosen of God and very precious. Verse 5, you also, he's making a comparison here with us. You also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. If Christ is a living stone, which it clearly says he is, then we were raised up, given truth, given his spirit, and we, too, are to be lively stones like he is. We are told to walk as he walked, to think as he thought, to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. So, we are all to be types, if you will, of Christ. Do we think of ourselves as a type of Christ? Remember God said it was not presumptuous of Christ when he was walking the earth as a human being to think of himself in the frame of God or to want to be like God. And in fact, he was destined to become God again soon. And you know what? It is our destiny. It is our purpose. It is our goal to become God. And that is not irreverence. That is not blasphemy. A lot of people in the Protestant world always thought Herbert Armstrong was teaching blasphemy when he said we are to become God. But that's our goal and that's the very purpose on life, for life. 
created to not be human, this mortal must put on immortality, and this corruption put on incorruption. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. No man can see God and live. And we will be able to look upon him and enjoy his presence in a loving marriage relationship. And unequals do not marry. There is an animal kind, and a human kind, and a God kind. Animals mate, humans marry, hopefully, and Christ will marry his bride. And it has to be like kind. If you're going to marry Christ, you have to be God. So it is not blasphemy at all when Peter writes that we are also lively stones, empowered by strengthened by the Spirit of God to be just like Christ. We see it in the human realm. Just like you, Dad. A little kid wants to be just like Daddy. Then you hear a kid use a certain word and you think, boy, where did you hear that? You said it, Daddy. So easy to be just like Dad. It is a natural desire within a little child or a boy to be like his daddy. And that natural desire should be in us to be like our heavenly father and like our elder brother. But that is not as natural. It takes the Spirit of God within us to cause us to be able to turn and begin to be like God doesn't come natural like it does with a little child and his human daddy, but, it's the, but the analogy fits. We as converted people need to be just like dad, and just like our big brother, and think of ourselves that way. Part of the family. So if he's a lively stone, Peter says we're to be a lively stone, and be built up as a spiritual house for Christ to live in. He needs to be comfortable in our minds. Who's the most comfortable in your mind? My mind. Satan or Christ? Now, didn't James say, if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. But if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. So the more we have the mind of Christ, the more we think peace, love, joy, happiness, patience, love the emotions of God, the less comfortable Satan will be around us. And he will leave that because he doesn't like the Spirit of God and the mind of God. But if we fill our things with the things, our minds with the things of this world and the things that Satan puts out there for us to use and enjoy then Satan will have more influence on us. He'll be more comfortable around us and will be drawn to us because we're thinking more like he and his world are thinking. So we are to be built up as a spiritual house full of the Spirit of God. And then Satan will not want to be around us 
Where does discouragement, doubt, fear, all those things that human beings struggle with come from? It doesn't come from God. It comes from human nature and Satan's influence upon us. So, if we have problems, the way to get over them, to get past them, to get around them, to overcome them, is to draw close to God. Because he will draw near to you, and he's full of encouragement and strength and power and love and kindness and gentleness, encouragement. Those are the things he's full of. So we're not to be dead stones, we're to be lively stones, enthused, excited, happy, moving forward, filled with the Spirit of God. A holy priesthood. He's laying it on us pretty thick here. You know, Christ is holy, you'll be holy. Be clean, you that bear the vessels of the eternal. To offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. Romans 12 goes into that in more detail. Uh, verse 1 where he tells us there to present our bodies or ourselves as uh, living sacrifices. A dead sacrifice doesn't do anybody any good. We sacrifice each other and discourage and cause them doubt and fear and frustration. And that doesn't do them any good. And it doesn't do us any good either. So a living sacrifice means that you sacrifice your energy, your time, your feelings, your thoughts, your words for other people. As human beings, we tend to be self-centered, taking care of me, making sure I have what I need and I'm taken care of and I'm happy and secure. Those are our first emotions and those are just human emotions. God says we need to be transformed. That's changed. An electrical transformer on a pole takes hundreds of thousands of volts of electricity and transforms it down to one pin which you can use without blowing all your electrical equipment up. So, God's Spirit in us, which is so very powerful, has to come in and transform our mind so that it's palatable, it's acceptable, it's encouraging and enhancing to other people, strengthening. So we're here to give ourselves to each other. That's what we're here for. Spiritual sacrifice. Now, isn't that really what Christ's life was all about? He sacrificed his time, his energy. He needed time to get off alone, to draw near to God. So at times he would leave the crowds who were following, or the multitudes, and go up into the mountains to pray. He would spend some time away to recharge his spiritual batteries, lest they train. But at the same time, he made himself available to people in every way he could for their benefit, for their growth, to answer questions, whatever it might be, to serve and give and help. He healed people. That was a great service to them. Cast demons out of them. He encouraged them. 
taught them ways that would make their lives better. And a spiritual sacrifice isn't always, let's say, spiritual. The little physical things we do are spiritual things as well. In other words, you may do something physical to help someone else, but it has a spiritual value to it, if you will. We, we can't separate physical and spiritual that easily. The way we live our physical life, God says, reflects our spiritual value. How we treat one another, he makes it very clear, reflects our spiritual value to him. So we might think, oh, that's just so-and-so, you know, and I've, I said what I said, and so what? Because it's just a human level thing in our mind or our emotion. But no, God says, I judge you on a spiritual level based on those physical things. And aren't many of the things God tells us to do physical? I mean, even like clean and unclean meats? Just food. Well, if it's clean, it's food. If it's not, it's just flesh. It's a physical thing, but it represents a great spiritual value that we separate that which is good from that which is bad. Tithing is money. People get all excited about that one because money and value is so important. Well, right now we don't tithe in broccoli as much as we do in dollars because we get dollars from wherever we work. But it becomes a very emotional issue with us because we value money so highly. We value materiality so highly. So God requires us to give a certain amount of that back to Him and to provide it for others who might have need. That's what His financial plan is all about. It's just physical. I mean, the American dollar even has all kinds of pagan symbols on it. And, and that, that which was fiat, almost worthless, yet it's what we get paid in, and it's what, we're, what value comes in. And he even has us give that pagan-looking money to him and to use it for the service of each other. Just physical. Not even really good stuff, for that matter. But in our society, it has a certain value. Is it spiritual? No. But does it represent God's spiritual purposes? Absolutely. Absolutely. We've seen that. He talks about how he is going to keep his 10%, his remnant of, of his church even. 10% to God is a very, very important number. Very important. So it is expressed both physically and spiritually. So when he says spiritual sacrifices... Realize that it has to do with anything in life, really, in that we are to be outgoing and serving and giving to people in every way we can, as opposed to be inward and taking care of self first. We have to put self aside. Didn't Christ put self aside? He became truly a serpent, a serpent, a servant, I meant to say, and he even was willing to go so far as to die, even for the people who were killing him. Not just the converted people 
He died for those people who literally killed him. And said, God, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Now there is a high standard for lively stones to live up to. To be willing to give our very lives for someone else who is an enemy. Now they were his enemies. There's no question about that. They stripped him, shredded him, tortured him, and killed him. That's what enemies do. They hated his guts. And yet he said, forgive them, Father. And he'll have them in his kingdom someday. I believe that. We killed him with our sins, didn't we? Aren't we part of it? Isn't he overlooking our sins? Hasn't he called us and converted us and given us opportunity to be part of the first fruits, the bride of Christ himself? Yep. Well, those who literally did the flogging and the killing aren't any worse than we are. They're going to be offered salvation, and I think most of them will accept it once they realize what it is that they've done in a past life when they come up in that second resurrection. So we're here to offer ourselves to one another in the kind of sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believes on him shall not be confounded. He's zeroing in on Christ here as our Savior. That he is the one that came from heaven, lived a human being's life, and in living perfectly and being willing to die for us, he was elected and has become so very, very precious, not only to the Father, who has a plan of salvation for us, but to us, who are part of that plan. So he needs to be very, very much in our thoughts. And he that believes on him shall not be confounded. It would be a very, very confounding thing to be told, no, you're a goat, go into the lake of fire. That would not be at all pleasant. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, and screaming and cries and shrieks of anger and bitterness and resentment would emit from a human mouth very quickly if given that sentence. But if we truly believe him and do what he says, we will not be confounded. God so desperately wants us in his kingdom, he's willing to work with us and let us go through all the garbage that we go through on this earth and sort our way through it and find him in spite of it. And he makes himself available to us. And we won't be confounded. We will succeed. He didn't call us to jerk the rug out from under us at the last second. He didn't do that. He loves us. He wants us there. He's not going to pull some kind of a sham or use guile or some of those things that human beings tend to use. This is genuine, it's true, and it's real. We will not be confounded. Unto you, therefore, which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. 
we have not been much persecuted yet uh, as the end time people of God. Worldwide Church of God was not really persecuted that much. But we are heading into a time when great persecution is going to come on God's people. Great persecution. And the world has disallowed the true Christ. But he is going to come on them like a rock. They disallowed him. And they're going to gnash their teeth and be so angry when he comes back as King of kings and Lord of lords, King all-glorious, as we say. They're not going to like that at all. You know, the whole world is going to turn and fight him again. He's going to have to make every knee bow before him. So this very one that they disallowed, which they are now disallowing, and only we as a few are allowing in our lives, is going to again, this time, be made king of kings and lord of lords. And he's going to have to put down every nation and every people and crush them because they will disallow him again. Oh, they're going to hate that. Because they've got a false Christ who is going to appear very shortly now. They're going to worship him. And when the true Christ comes, they won't believe it. They won't believe it. A lot of these Protestants out here, brethren, read the Scriptures. They talk about Christ coming in glory. They talk about the trumpet sounding and so on. Those people are expecting that kind of return. And yet, when it is real, they're going to deny it and disallow him again. What is coming before that that is going to be so incredible that the people who have read the Bible and know what type of second coming is written are going to be deceived? There has to be a hologram. There has to be something coming down from heaven. There has to be something that appears so righteous, so powerful, that the whole world is going to buy it. And it's got to appeal to all colors and creeds and races and cultures of man, religions of man. I, I can't describe it. It's beyond me. It's beyond you. Just be aware that it's coming. With all lying signs and wonders in the heavens. Don't know just how it's going to come out or what technical and electronic stuff will be used and how much of just Satan, the prince of the power of the air's power himself. But it's going to be almost beyond comprehension. Verse 8, And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word. How many people believe in this word of God? How many people believe in the tenets or the commandments, the rules of this book? They believe in a Jesus by name, but they don't believe what he said. They don't believe his word. It says the word of the eternal will endure forever. Christ is described as the Word of God because He lived up to it perfectly. 
He did everything it said. But he is a stumbling. The true Christ is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The false Jesus people worship did not keep the Ten Commandments because they believe they're done away with. It's a false Christ. And there's an even bigger false Christ coming. They stumble at these words. Being disobedient. What is disobedient? Disobedient means you break the rules. You break the commandments. Obedient means you keep the rules. So Christianity and true worship of the true God has to do with keeping His rules, His commandments. So obedience is very much involved. You read it. Peter didn't know what he was talking about. But James said the same thing. John says the same thing. This is the love of God, that you keep the commandments. God's love and keeping commandments is one and the same. It's exactly the same thing. There's no difference. It's not just an emotion. It creates proper emotions, yes. They're being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. Didn't Christ say he spoke in parables so that they might be taken and snared and deceived? He did not want the world to understand the truth right now, just a very few that he's calling out to be given the truth. Why? Because if they knew it, they understood it, and denied it, they would have to be destroyed. But because they were deceived... They're going to again gain a ticket of mercy and come up in a second resurrection and be taught the truth under better conditions with Satan bound or during the millennium and the great white throne judgment. And then most of them will be saved. But under current conditions, God realized most human beings, if they really knew his truth, would deny it in any case. Just the way it is. So the Bible itself is not written in a very simple, direct, straightforward way, is it? It's here a little, there a little, line upon line, verse upon verse. You have to put the whole word together to understand the plan of God. It isn't like laid out like run, spot, run, go, Jane, go, or, you know. It's just not laid out quite that simply. So that they might be taken and snared and deceived and not have to be lost. It is only by God turning something in your mind, himself, personally, that you can understand this book. Until he turns on the light, you can't see it. You won't understand it. You might accept the Bible as a nice book. You might accept that you should love Jesus or whatever the Protestants might believe, and that's about the extent of it. But to understand the plan of God and the way of life that he wants people to live, they don't get it. They don't get it. They were appointed to that, he says right here. But then notice the contrast, verse 9. But you are a chosen generation. Chosen. Now, he chose that generation that Peter was writing to to be the early New Testament church. And it essentially died out through either falling away 
or persecution and martyrdom or whatever, so that by the year 100 A.D., about 70 years after the Holy Spirit came in, on Pentecost, the church had disappeared. Hard to find anybody who followed God's ways at that time. So they were chosen as a generation to, to be first fruits. And look at today. About 70 years from the time the church began and the end time, it essentially fell apart and disappeared. About the same amount of time. Incredible, isn't it? God has chosen this generation. Chose that one in Peter's day, and he chose this one in Herbert Armstrong's day, and you're in my day. And by the time this generation gets old and almost dies out, not quite, but almost, it's going to turn around. And it's been about 70 years. Chosen generation, a royal priesthood. So God has chosen this generation that we're in. And he's made us a royal, kingly line. We're to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow. So we're royalty. That seems strange. As I look out at you and you look back at me, we don't look too royal. We're just human beings. Nothing special, but God has put us in the position of royalty. And when royalty is born among the royalty of this world, they go through intense training as they grow up. They're taught all the manners, all the protocol, all the right things to say at the right events. They are taught day and night almost all the things the royalty must know to survive in an unroyal world. And God, indeed, has called us to be a royal, godly priesthood. It is the highest line of royalty in the universe. Godly kingship, godly priesthood that we are called to. Let's not minimize ourselves. It's easy to look at ourselves and say, we aren't anything. No, we're not. But we've been called to be something special. And we have to go through what is necessary to become special. So he's writing to us. This is a chosen generation. We have been given the trappings of a royal priesthood, and to be a holy nation, a holy people. He's, some of the prophecies speak of uh, nations, and it is easy to get confused sometimes and think, well, this is just talking about all of physical Israel. It's not referring to the church here. Well, in many cases it is. Because Peter was writing to the church here, and he called it a holy nation. So nation just means a bunch of people. It isn't always necessarily the way we think of a nation today among the nations of the world. But the church is a holy nation in itself. And then well, there's a bad translation, or an, or an ancient translation next, where it calls us a peculiar people. 
And some people would look at us and think that's very well translated. Peculiar, odd, strange, different, weird. What a strange religion they have. But that's not what the Greek said. It says here we're a purchased people. Purchased by the blood of Christ. Purchased by his perfect life. Purchased by his resurrection, which will occur here as an anniversary very shortly. To be accepted to God in the way of sheep tomorrow on a Sunday. Now we are a purchased, redeemed from this world. That you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So with all these high-sounding things that he has made us, called us to be, there comes a responsibility. We have to live up to being chosen, royal, holy, and purchased by God. You go to the store, maybe you go to the produce department, and you may pick up this tomato and that tomato before you put one in your basket. You choose which tomatoes you want out of that bin. You want those that are pleasant to the eye, pleasant to the touch, smell right. You want good produce. You leave the other to somebody else. But you want the good stuff. Well, God is no different. So he says, I've called you to these high and lofty positions and jobs for my kingdom. Now, I want you to be the kind of first fruits that I would pluck. But he's chosen us. We can't do, any, we can't do anything about that now. Too late. You were chosen and you accepted. You were baptized. You had hands laid on you. You're in. I'm sorry. Can't get out of it. Got to finish the job. Got to become holy and righteous and royal. Now this book is here as the book to teach you how to be a godly king. The right kind of royalty. I don't know what kind of books that the royalty in England and Germany and the Netherlands and so on use to train their people. They don't use this. They may use little parts of it here and there, but this isn't, this isn't the guidebook for, for raising kings in this world. But it's God's guidebook to transform us into kings and priests, into a holy nation, into a royal priesthood to rule forevermore in the kingdom of God. Pretty valuable book that he's left for us to say this is how to become a royal king in the line of Christ and the Father. Do we treasure this book? How often do we look at this book? Because that's what it is. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We were just like anybody else out in the world. God's mercy was not there, was not extended to us, but now we have it. 
He mercifully forgave us in the blood of the Lamb of all our sins, past, present, and future, if we're willing to confess and forsake them before Him. And that's what this day of unbid, these days of unleavened bread are all about, is having examined ourselves and discerned where sin is in our lives, now we have these seven days to work at getting rid of it. So while there is a great deal of hope, a great deal of faith in James and now hope in Peter, there also comes with that a great deal of responsibility and a great deal of work. So perhaps it really was written during the days of unleavened bread. Not only does it focus upon what Christ did and how he is our Savior and how he's alive, it also tells us to get the deadness out of ourselves, the leaven, that which represents death, sin which will bring death. So we concentrate and focus on that and we eat this flatbread. <laughs> I ordered a strange hamburger yesterday. I said, put it on corn tortillas. That was really strange looking and hard to eat and kind of weird. So we're looked upon as weird, aren't we? And it is strange. I like puffy bread a whole lot better, generally speaking, than I do this flat stuff. You can make it pretty good if you work at it, but it's still not quite as good as the other witness the fact that we'll go back to the other very, very quickly as soon as these days are ended. So this is a time to concentrate on getting the negativity out of our lives and laying aside all these human things in verse 1 of this chapter and move forward to become more like the lively living stone, Christ, who lived perfectly and died as a servant to us because we have obtained his mercy. Let's stop there for today.